Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Aaron Rosen. Aaron is a curator, writer, scholar, and author of the recently released book, What Would Jesus See? You can get connected with Aaron and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Aaron Rosen with me. And uh, Aaron, there's a lot of things that you do in the world. You're a professor, you're art curator, you're a critic, uh, you're a writer, you do so, so many things. But who is Aaron Rosen to Aaron Rosen? <laughs> well, I try not to think about myself that much. I mean, most of life <laughs> is trying to, trying to create a certain veil of silence so one doesn't have to think about one's internal self, right? <laughs> I... Uh, but yes, I mean, I think the core things about me and my identity are actually pretty eternal. It's just that, um, of course, like most people, it just took me a while to realize them. So I think I've always been a writer, um, but I understand that term differently over the years. I was much more of an academic writer, and I think now I, I can sort of switch into that key, but I also think myself as a children's book writer, um, mm. a, a popular theologian, um, and art critic. So there's these kind of different voices, um, but not in a, <laughs> not in a, an I hear voices sort of way. And then, and I've always been a curator, but I never, I even thought of that as a career when I was younger. And, and so that's something that's come to me sort of later in life as I realized I would have all these relationships with artists and I would love thinking about their creative process with them. And I'd even love the aspects of, you know, putting things around the room and figuring out where to put, where to place um, works of art. And then eventually placing them in public spaces, placing them in churches, cathedrals and the like. And, and then I realized, oh no, that's, that's what a curator is. I'm, I am a curator um, and I've been curating absolutely everything about my life. Although that sounds a little millennial because these days people always talk about, oh, I'm going to curate my palette. I'm going to curate my, my mm. dinner or whatever. So, so yeah, now everyone's a curator. I mean, even when uh, the, the church that I was a part of uh, in Minneapolis, like the the titles, the job titles were really like kind of millennials like that, where it's yeah. like, you know, curator of faith formation or something along those lines. Oh, and, and everything so, is a bespoke oh, yeah. experience. That's also crucial. That's yes. right. That's yeah. right. Uh, so you're speaking my millennial heart. Let's talk about a little bit about the book. Th- this is not your first book by any means. No. You've certainly read uh, or you've uh, ri- written a few books. You've certainly read a few books, I'm sure, but you've certainly written a few books as well. Uh, what did you learn about yourself in the writing process of this book that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I mean, I think I've, um, I mean, I like to think that, you know, you learn something about yourself in every book. And and now, I mean, these days, I tend to think of everything as some sort of form of autobiography. It's just various mm. levels of disguise. So I even think my first book, Imagining Jewish Art, I was really just trying to figure out what it meant to be a Jew who had grown up in rural Maine, moved to England, and was trying to figure out what it means to be a Jew. In that case, at a, at a distance from a lot of traditions um, and at a distance from a lot of other Jews and trying to think about um, how I constructed my Jewishness. And I, and I had all sorts of ornate devices to figure that out largely through modern painting. Um, so with this book, I think it, I, I mean, it, it comes back to an interreligious background and, and also an interreligious life that I lead. And so it was really making sense of a lot of things that my, Think about my mother, who is Christian, to out myself. I'm a, uh, I'm a Jew. I see myself as a practicing Jew, mm-hmm. um, but by the definitions of orthodoxy, a little problematic since um, uh, my mother's a Christian, uh, my father's Jewish, and I've always identified as Jewish. 
uh, and I'm now married to an Episcopal priest, and uh, and my son is Jewish. So we're continuing on this patrilineal line mm-hmm. of, uh, of problematic Jews. And so, uh, so this book was an opportunity to not be afraid of touching that Christian um, element of my history or of my life, and thinking about it from a, an explicitly interfaith. Um, Jewish perspective of mine. Mm-hmm. And so it was really a great chance to test myself. But even now I, I have just a slight antsiness about it because, you know, it's like you take a book and you're like, oh, have you read this book about Jesus? Have you read this book about Jesus? So I can't help but feel a little strange, you know, handing it out or doing signings <laughs> and wanting to like bracket everything of what kind of Jew I am and, and making mm-hmm. sure everyone understands that I really really still see myself as a Jew. So I'm mm-hmm. hardly the first person. Jews have actually been obsessed with Jesus for a long time. And and of course, there's many brilliant books by Jewish theologians um, and Jewish historians and cultural historians about Jesus. So I'm in that sort of lineage of Jews who have been, you know, uh, drawn to this flame. But it still makes me a little nervous from time to time. Totally. I can imagine that. Is there anything that you learned maybe about the Bible, about Jesus, even maybe about like art uh, or you know, something else. Uh, but was there something more kind of like factual or theological that you learned uh, as you were researching for this book that you were like, oh, that's a nugget that I need to put in. And I didn't know about that before. You know, of course, in in my PhD at Cambridge and other places, you know, there's there's times when I've read uh, selections in the New Testament very closely. But I think it's the this was one of the first times that I just insisted that I would read things steadily through and that I'd really just try to live a little more immersed in the rhythms of the gospels. Um, I mean, I have this curious life with my wife being a priest that every Saturday night after Havdalah, we talk about her sermon on Sunday morning. So I'm always dipping in um, mm-hmm. to Christian texts, especially via the, the Christian lectionary. But this was the first time of really wanting to to spend a deeper amount of time sort of living with the um, living with the gospels um, to write the book. And I think one of the things that I loved and that I feel is still underappreciated is how how strange and ironic and funny Jesus can be and saucy even a little bit. And I think I think that's one of the things that I really found myself identifying with is that he's always he's interrupting sort of normative for his time patterns of thinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to sort of fall into this trap of uh, I think of a kind of millennial Christianity of like, Jesus, he's so cool and edgy. He was the original hipster. You know, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that stuff is a bit lame, but on the other hand, I, I really felt a a sense of the, um, the brilliance of Jesus's strangeness. And so, so I wanted to sort of bring that out Mm -hmm. um, uh, through the book. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 I and of course you know like most Jews <laughs> reading the New Testament um, and there's more brilliant scholars that have done this. I was impressed by the the studiousness of his of his Jewishness, even as that's problematic to the people writing the story and numerous mm-hmm. levels of reception. There's a there's a Jewishness in there that's that's really fun to mm-hmm. observe. Mm-hmm. I actually I want to talk about that later, uh, but w- let's dive into the book right now. So the way you begin the book is you talk about how Jesus understands vision. Obviously, the book being called What What Would Jesus See? You know, a lot of this book is about vision. And so you talk about how Jesus understands vision at the beginning of the book. Can you talk a little bit about why vision is so important to Jesus and his ministry? Yeah, I mean, I think he, I mean, we all live in visually saturated worlds, right? And mm-hmm. and actually, we then just try to detach people in the past and think that they're somehow less visual <laughs> than we are, whereas actually his world is, you know, much more sensory and multi-sensory than ours in some ways without screens. And I think that, you know, Jesus needed to capture people's imagination and attention, and he needed to do that in a number of different ways. And part of it is, of course, his his brilliance as a as a speaker. But you know, even delivering the Beatitudes, there's a sense of being on a hill or being being viewed, being seen speaking as well, right? Not just speaking, but being seen to speak, um, or in engaging with a woman accused of. Uh, of adultery, that he is wanting to set the stage for a particular thing that's happening, right? Mm. Um, so he wants to um, he wants to draw uh, in the sand. He wants to direct people's vision in all sorts of ways, and so he's using every tool at his disposal to do this. And in, in some cases, he is like a uh, he's a bit theatrical, or he's a he's a kind of performance artist, and mm-hmm. it's just. 
that we're not always comfortable uh, seeing Jesus that way. We there's a kind of presumption that it would be almost demeaning to think of him, you know, hamming it up to the crowd or or utilizing their energies in particular ways and choreographing what he's doing. But he oftentimes goes out of his way to be choreographic. That's that's part of the messaging is that it's it's physicalized in that way, and he's really proximate to people to much sometimes in a way that I think flusters him and causes him to need a sense of remove. I talk about this at the, in the book a bit that, you know, he needs to go up to mountains to um, pray in the dark and people have to come and fetch him because he's so um, overstimulated in his senses. So he needs this, uh, he needs to refocus his vision. So he's, he, you know, he's living a very messy sensorial life and, and vision is inextricable from that at, at every different level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's something so interesting about thinking about Jesus in that way where it's just, I, I think a lot of times we miss it because what we have of Jesus is just words, right? Um, you know, the stories are very word centric and then obviously we hear it orally, but it, it would be, you know, and, that, and that's why like some of the like kind of visual adaptations that we've seen of the gospels are, there's a lot of creative freedom that has to be made. Um, and it's just really interesting. Like some of the the choices that are made for those visual representations or, oh, yeah. uh, or adaptations. Um, but it, it really is interesting to like think of Jesus in this visual way, uh, even to the point where like, you know, you see like, you know, the classic like white Jesus, but, and then, and then I, I forget how many years ago, but there was that, that um, depiction of what Jesus likely looked like given him being like a, uh, you know, first century Palestinian Jew and what we might know about what they would have looked like. And it's just like, it's so jarring to like, Oh, like visually, this is even what Jesus would have looked like. And so just that, that whole visual aspect, that con that, that, added context uh, to these gospels, to Jesus is so interesting. Um, and it, it, I don't know, I, I just find it very, very yeah, fascinating. You know, and, and, and in some ways, this is, uh, you know, uh, one of the um, uh, very kind blurbs on the back of my book is written by my friend Joan Taylor, who wrote a book, What Did Jesus Look Like? You know, it, so that's the question she was exploring. So she was kind of, so in, in a way, these are the kind of bookends, you know, what would Jesus see and how would Jesus be seen? What did mm. he look like? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so she kind of digs into these questions in really interesting ways. And also the, the fact that, um, you know, so little um, external record outside of the, of the New Testament and other texts that didn't make it into the canon about these, these visual questions. And so, mm-hmm. so much was up for grabs very early on. And so, of course, you know, it's just not surprising that some people depicted Jesus as a, as a Greek philosopher. Some depicted him as a, um, as a, as a more of a mythic hero, or, you know, so he, he'll show up as, as being Apollonian, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. so, so everyone had things that they were um, trying to read into the visage of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, at the same time, I mean, I wanted to set myself a question, which I felt was um, answerable and unanswerable, which is, so it, I really wanted to enjoy the conjecture of how would this way of seeing that Jesus had transport um, and, and, uh, elegantly or not, into the present. What might this worldview that he brings is so unique um, have mm-hmm. to say to our present moment? And so, so it was both sort of inhabiting that, that so to speak, original sense of, of how Jesus might have seen his world, but then, uh, but then taking that forward in another mm-hmm. way. So it's really kind of a theological thought experiment. But to your point about um, what did Jesus look like? Yeah, I mean, I thought about that a lot the other day when I was Atlanta in Atlanta at Ebenezer uh, Baptist Church as a cradle mm-hmm. of the civil rights movement and thinking about the images of Jesus that are, are present there and thinking uh, about that legacy and how much revisioning needed to happen uh, when it comes to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The, you mentioned just really briefly about taking this question of what would Jesus see and bringing it into our context. And that really kind of brings it full circle of obviously your, the title of the book is this sort of play on the, what would Jesus do phrase that became really popular, Mm -hmm. especially I grew up as an evangelical kid. So I had, you know, the WWJD bracelets and shirts and all the things. Right. And, but the point of that question uh, was not just what did Jesus do in the Bible, but the point of that question is what, 
would what would Jesus do and how are you going to do what Jesus would do in your current context? And so mm-hmm. I like that you're kind of using that phrase in that same way where it's like not only did what what did Jesus see in the Bible, but what would Jesus see now if he were here and how how does that actually how should that affect us in our lives now? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, of course, I, I'm absolutely channeling that um, that phraseology very consciously. Um, when we were when I was debating the book title with my uh, publisher, you know, at some at one point they they had a meeting and for marketing and said, I don't know, it doesn't feel very of the moment, and um, it feels. Um, possibly a bit too evangelical and I thought too evangelical do you know who I am like that's like I've been called many things but evangelical Christian is definitely not one of them and uh and so I found myself really having to argue for um and and I think you know they offered lots of wonderful pushback but have to argue for this title of what would Jesus see? And we even debated about whether or not uh, we should have a question mark. They thought maybe the question mark was a little bit too much. And I was like, no, I really mm-hmm. think it is a question. We need the question mark for, for what would Jesus see? And uh, because I wanted to be uncertain, um, but I, you know, one of the things that's, that I dig into a little bit in the introduction of the book is that, that what the WWJD crowd you know, it's a great, had a great question um, and one that's recurred in different ways throughout Christian history. Um, But the problem is, is that um, too many people thought they knew. So there really just wasn't a good question mark at the end. It was, what would Jesus do? Oh, I know he would be a literalist interpreting himself. Like, no, probably not. (laughs) Probably, (laughs) probably the opposite, actually. And so a lot of the sort of revolutionary spark of Jesus actually got lost in what is and can be a very radical question. So mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted to sort of harness what I think are the best elements of that um, it, with this, what would Jesus see? Right. So you open up the book talking about, you know, what, uh, how Jesus understood vision and uh, obviously what would Jesus see? You also talk about how others see Jesus. And obviously, given Jesus's context, he was mostly seen by other early Jews during that time during his ministry. So given that context, how do others see Jesus or how would have others seen Jesus? Oh, I mean, I think there's better scholars on this than me. And I um, and and I've been clear in the book that I don't want to do a historical Jesus analysis, but to give it this sort of a rough take, um, I think you know, I, I think people, I mean, he was, he was seen in the company of other people delivering uh, apocalyptic visions and bold visions of the future with, with elements of political agitation. Um, you know, and I, and I think so many of the books that have come out in the last, you know, 50 to 70 years, have, you know, every generation has picked up and signal scholars have picked up on different elements of, of Jesus, you know, with it, um, you know, similarities to, um, to other political movements in in uh, first century Palestine, I mean, I think actually um, uh, Monty Python, um, you know, captures it in the life of Brian pretty well. Is that there was all sorts of different factions and different way, and, and first century um, Palestine was a complete mess. And mm-hmm. and Jesus both stood out for the the beauty um, and the strangeness of his vision, and yet at the other time, on the other hand, was one of many people preaching a, a radical vision and contesting what the future of Judaism would look like. And so, and trying to position himself in a world that's, you know, of course, at that time defined by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, these, these different, these different groups with, with different visions of, um, of, of what Judaism uh, should be. Mm -hmm. Um, So everything was in, uh, everything was in flux in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, I don't think I'm not even sure Jesus knew how to think about himself. So, mm-hmm. so how do we know what, what other people saw in him? Right. And, and I think one of the, the imaginative records that we've had of, you know, the last temptation of Christ and, and sort of different visionings of Jesus, I think, I think get to this, this sense of, uh, of strangeness in his, his own self-conception. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, go, even the fact that we have four canonical gospels that are all, you know, presenting a very different Jesus, you know, clearly people were seeing Jesus very differently. Um, so, you know, the, the question that Jesus often gets of, you know, who who am I? And, and, you know, him asking his disciples who he is. And, 
mm. a lot of times they get it wrong. And and I kind of wonder like, well, it clearly like everybody seems to be getting like at least a part of Jesus wrong because there were so many different understandings of who this guy was. And so clearly people saw him very differently depending on who you were. Yes. And I like that you bring up this sense of him asking, right? Because on the way, you know, there's so many different ways to, to see that. And we often see it through uh, the prism of later Christology when ideas about Jesus's um, divinity or personhood um, had had been decided. And then eisegetically, we read that back in and assume that he's doing things with the kind of clarity of conception that comes from later Christian theology. And, and sometimes you get the sense that he's like, no, really, guys, tell me who am I, <laughs> right? That there, you know, that he's almost aware that he he has these shadows of other of other identities and and um and and that they're they're not um they're they're both wrong and right in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. And and so so seeing him, he's able to see himself typologically in a line of of other prophets to see his affinity to Moses or to Elijah, uh, and to see. And at the same time, to see himself as the son of man at times, and so, so I think it's, I, I think he's he's going through these these questions, and I think it's it's productively indeterminate. But of course, we as readers and especially believers want to want to isolate and determine those things for him. I want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October nineteenth through the twenty first, two thousand twenty three, in Springfield, Missouri. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code MASONGODPOD, all caps, no spaces, you can receive $25 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. I think it was like sometime somewhere in, in the middle of the book, but you talk a little bit about what Jesus asks of his followers. And I think you even might've used like the word demands, like what de- Jesus like demanded of his followers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think the middle. I mean, I haven't read the middle of it in a yeah, long let time. Me, Let's see. <laughs> let me, where did I write that note down? Let me, let me see it really quick. But yeah, there was somewhere, it was like maybe chapter two or chapter three, somewhere yeah. around there. I mean, I think the, um, you know, I think, there's all sorts of demands that he makes of people. And I think one is one, the one that I, I, I talk about a lot is, um, is this idea of recognizing others and that he has a really strong call for what that is that, uh, that we need to see people in a kind of a, a fullness. I mean, in the way that he sees other people. So he's, he's a demand, he's always setting standards for them that they can't meet. Right. Mm. And in fact, I mean, as many people have pointed out that, I mean, the, the um the disciples can be fairly schmucky at times right that's part of their 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 gift as literary characters but it's also part of what makes them approachable and allows people to see themselves within the new testament narratives because they are they are not these elevated um intellectuals or or even morally all that elevated actually um jesus Mm -hmm. elevates them and he, he you know utilizes their their moral and intellectual frailty so i think that Jesus is calling them to try to see others the way that he sees them, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I, I, I really enjoyed writing about is what this calling narrative is. You know, when he calls disciples, he will, uh, I mean, I, I sort of compare it to a pickup basketball team that it's like you, I'll take you, uh, you look tall, I'll take you, you know, you could play point, you'll take you. And it's really just who's there at the playground. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not it, like he's not collecting references. He's There's nothing particular that he's that we can see him seeing in someone out there just, but he sees him, he sees him with this, this depth of, um, mm-hmm. of their humanity. And so, so being seen in that way, um, and that certainly comes out with this, with the story of Matthew, uh, you know, to, to be seen in that way, then, um, then is issues forth from it, a demand to see others in a, in a similar way if one can. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, he, ex- he expects and knows they will fail at all of these things. Right. It it is interesting you bring up that point about the disciples being this literary element where the reader can identify with. Like I, I mean, really, I, I've never really thought about the disciples in that way, but like these twelve disciples are really people that, in, in a variety of different ways, you're like, oh, 
that's me. Like that's me in the story right there. And that that is really interesting how these stories are framed in such a way where you you feel like you're you're one of these people that Jesus is having a relationship with. Oh, a- a- absolutely. I mean, and I think that's their their brilliance is as literature. And actually it's a it's a brilliant genre to try to um which is not um not unakin to some experiments in modern literature to try to tell the same story from slightly varied perspectives in these ways and to to twist things and recapitulate them at times, but just have slight little fissures that differentiate the stories when you read them uh, uh, against one another. Um, but, you know, I, I think I'm always drawn to those moments where there's there's ambiguity. I mean, you know, I probably shouldn't, you know, have favorites, but it's why I prefer um, the other, the synoptics to John. I feel that mm-hmm. John is too solid. He knows too much. He's too convinced of, of everything that he's portraying. So this, mm-hmm. so the story to me lacks some of the permeability that I, that I look for in, in, in the other gospels. But I think there's a gift that Christianity allows this, this kind of um, literary smorgasbord that you can, you can identify strongly with one, not only with particular characters, but ways of representing the same characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I was, always aware at, at, you know, being married to a priest that I'm, I'm allowing myself a certain playfulness and toying with, with, to, to me, what are literary representations, but they have real implications for people. And I mm-hmm. always wanted to feel like I was writing things that brought out something in the text that would be useful to people that, um, that would have a different faith background than me. And, for, mm-hmm. and so there, so it was always this kind of balance of looking for irony and looking for humor uh, and I quote uh, uh, Bishop Christopher Stendhal on this, that, you know, uh, the importance of humor in relationship to biblical studies, but also just, a, you know, a profound respect on the other hand. Um, you you mentioned just just a second ago about how you look at these stories as literature, but they have profound implications for our world. And I often think about you know, there's always like this argument among like fundamentalist Christians about like biblical inspiration and all of that. I often think of inspiration in that way. And and I've said before, like, you know, we could, if tomorrow we found out Jesus actually never even existed, which is very unlikely, but if we find that, that out, I still think I would be a Christian because of these literary, because of this as literature and how it has changed my life and how I think it can change the world as well. Do you, when you were writing this book, and, and again, you're toying with these as literature, do you think through like biblical inspiration, even for like your own tradition as a Jew? Like, do you think through like the that dynamic of like how much of this needs to actually be historical, how much of it really needs to be just literary for, for these stories to be like inspiration for you and, and, and your faith. Yeah. You know, I don't think, well, to use Jack Black in this school of rock, you know, one good, <laughs> uh, one great uh, rock show can change the future of the world, you know? So I think, uh, you know, I believe very passionately in, um, in imaginative capacity and I believe it, it I, I really do believe in it as being revelatory as well. And, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, great thinkers that have explored this, you know, from my dear friend Ben Quash to um, David Brown, another Anglican theologian, that, that taking seriously um, uh, works of the imagination um, can reveal deep and profound things of, uh, about God. And so I think, uh, or, or really about ourselves. And so I... Uh, so I, I think there's a truth value that doesn't ever have to be um, historical, but it, but I'm very cognizant of uh, that it does for for other people. Mm-hmm. And and you know when I approach my own tradition as a Jew, I mean when I talk about the Passover story with my son or the Esther story at Purim, we emphasize the story and we emphasize what we can find in it. But but the veracity of that is is not something I I that's frankly, all that important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, one of the things my son is doing a lot recently is is he says, you know, can you tell me a story about Haman? And I realized that, I mean, of course, Jewish, the Jewish uh, holiday calendar is really just about a bunch of attempted genocides that happened to us over and over again in different Mm -hmm. ways. And so it's, you know, hard to hard to tell these stories to kids, you know, and then someone else tried to kill everyone because they were Jewish. And, um, it's not a wonderful message, although frankly more and more relevant in the in in this part of the 21st century. And uh, so he'll say, "Tell me another story about Haman." And uh, and he's been really worried that if 
you know, if Elijah can come back at, at Passover, then maybe the Pharaoh can come back as well and get little good Jewish boys, um, but also maybe Haman. So they live in his imagination in this really creative way. And mm -hmm. we've translated it that, you know, Haman's trying to steal all the chocolates from the Jews and he, he has to learn his lesson and go into timeout and get better at sharing with Jews. This is kind of our rendition of this. And, um, and, and even the fanciful silliness of, of this whole exercise with him makes me makes me appreciate um how we continually evolve the stories in our minds and we're and we're always trying to triangulate to to what we think are the messages that are that are most core in that right in mm -hmm. terms of what does respect mean in a vocabulary for a for a newly minted five-year-old right mm -hmm. and so um so i i've had i have an you know, I've always been interested in the imaginative record in terms of modern and contemporary high-end art. And, but here I find myself as a parent engaging with story in a different way. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's what, what anchors that for people where, where do, do they need to have, again, that, that sort of belief that imagination does certain things and reveals certain things, or do they need to believe that there's a historical kernel upon mm -hmm. which things are, are based. And, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't want to judge the, um, you know, the, um, either end of that. Right, right. Your your chapter about how Jesus understands true and false appearances was really interesting to me. Uh, for listeners who haven't read the book yet, um, but want a little, uh, little sneak peek, what do you mean by true and false appearances? And how does Jesus understand them? And, and what do they have to teach us in, in our time? Gosh, yeah. I mean, I, this was so much to delve into as a writer. I was actually a little bit scared of writing this, writing that chapter. Um, I think uh, truth and falsity in a number of different ways. One is that I wanted to um, play with the idea of, of uh, what it means to be an eyewitness, um, mm. because the the gospels are oftentimes insisting that someone saw something very directly, or this was seen, and then this was reported to this person who gave a faithful record of it to this person. And of course, we know that that's not a great standard of evidence in the contemporary courtroom, and actually opens the floodgates to prejudice. Um, we think about the terrifying numbers of people of color that have been convicted on, quote unquote, eyewitness testimony, mm. right? So on the one hand, I wanted to I, I think I wanted to figure out what could be salvaged in in some of uh, some ideas of witness and and think about the um, I was thinking about this a little bit this morning that you know Jesus's standard for determining um, truth or witnessing is not always doesn't work in all circumstances but he he really uh, he really emphasizes personal conviction and above all his own conviction of what mm -hmm. he is seeing. But I, I compare that in the book um, and think about examples of witnessing in, in moments of historical trauma when all you can do is um, depend on your knowledge that what you're seeing is really happening and that it must be seen by others and that you have a critical role to transmit that. And so I, I relate that to to some of the very few photographs that are taken by um, within the um, within the concentration camps at Auschwitz, mm. uh, just these couple little snapshots that are, that are taken incognito one from the sort of uh, almost unimaginable from the, um, from the mouth of the crematorium. And that there, that this, this sort of heroic act of, of this witnessing, you know, has, has points of relationship. I, I don't want to draw too strong parallels, but it does points of relationship to, to thinking about the young woman who, who bravely captured the murder of George Floyd. And, mm -hmm. I mean, wins a Pulitzer Prize, right? That there's that there's something about knowing in a particular moment that you are doing, you are seen on behalf of others, mm. and, and and how crucial that act can be. And so, I wanted to talk about those thing, those issues. And at the and the other hand, I wanted to talk a little bit about how I have a little section in in that chapter called uh, "Invisible Ink." How do we look? Jesus is always asking us to look deeper and interpret things at a at a more refined uh, level that he can determine and uh, and and seeing behind the text or behind what seems to be going on is is a brilliant call on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, how does that um, stop from becoming just brazen esotericism um, or a kind of quasi mystical capacity and you see this in QAnon right that mm -hmm. wanting to wanting to say oh well this is a signal of this if you look at the number of letters this proves this thing <laughs> and you're like and so how do we not get 
caught up in that how and and because i think that's idolatrous i think mm -hmm. by christian um terminology this th that QAnon aspect is is very is idolatrous and so no hopefully that won't um impact your readers i i doubt there's very many <laughs> our listeners rather but um, <laughs> i don't think you have to worry about QAnon. yeah I'm, I'm, i think we're pr probably pretty safe here right <laughs> but you know so one of the things i say in the book is that jesus invites us to um to read between the lines but there's still lines, you know, mm -hmm. and that's that's the important thing. And and when trying to discern something that that religiously might feel um, hermetic and only, you know, for your eyes only to use a kind of James Bondism. So I was really interested in kind of exploring some of these these kind of gray regions where where truth and falsity get get hard to determine. Um, mm -hmm. And that's and I think in our contemporary media culture, that's that's just harder and harder. So I, I point to the kind of signal moment for me. And I remember watching this on the on TV in Berkeley was the first episode of the Colbert Report when he talks about truthiness. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's what a wonderful satire that is. And of course, actually, he's a very Colbert is a very religiously um, astute um, viewer, actually, of, of the contemporary world. And uh, and that I think we are saturated in that moment of truthiness mm -hmm. and, and it's only going to get worse with AI and other technology and disingenuous actors. And so mm -hmm. I think, so I think I was interested in, in using Jesus who's oftentimes drawn into these conversations in the wrong way, trying to bring him in a different way and say, you know, mm -hmm. how might, what kind of tools might he give us to, to discern truth and falsity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated that chapter for that reason, and you're especially you're connecting that to like you know the rise of like fake news and all of that. I really, really appreciated that, uh, and, and to think of Jesus and and, and again the, those false and true appearances to think about Jesus uh, in, in kind of those stories through that like the the eyes or the the context of like fake news, this truthiness, all of that. It's really, really interesting to think about it through all of that. Yes, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it's a, I mean, it's a terrifying cultural moment on the one hand, totally. but I think I've always felt like one of my, one of the things I could do as a scholar is just in a, in small ways kind of help rescue religion from its own, from its own adherence a little bit and remind people of the, the ethical beauty, um, the shimmering clarity at times um, of biblical texts. And and remind people when to also when to find that ambiguity that that that, that texts always mean more than that we think they do in a particular cultural moment and and no doubt there's ways in which I've got this spectacularly wrong in my own book or mm -hmm. in my other books but um but but really trying to to utilize the text to be more rigorous on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Jesus may be the most famous person in history, and yet we don't know what he looked like. And we, you know, touched on this a little bit, but, you know, if Jesus just came back right now, none of us would know that it's actually Jesus because we don't know what he looked like. And I, I think what's funny is that also in the story, in many of the stories, his own followers misrecognize him. Like they don't, they mm. don't recognize him. And uh, you, you talk a little bit about that in, in the book as well. Why is that important that even some of his own followers don't recognize him? Like we don't recognize Jesus. I, I find that really funny and interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one of the strangest stories and really one of the most problematic. Uh, so I loved that, of course. Um, <laughs> and, um, and by the way, I mean, of course, Dostoevsky and others have sort of imagined this. And sometimes people imagine that that everyone knows it's Jesus, but then in the Dostoevsky version, um, of course, the the church wants to get rid of him. <laughs> so you're not needed here. We've got it. Uh, yeah, when he comes, especially when he's uh, when he's resurrected, why is it that he would that they wouldn't see him? And I really puzzled over this a lot, um, uh, especially because it's such a famous. Um, uh, incident in the in the history of art, and you have Titian's Noli Me Tangere, and you have Jesus in what I I think describe or wish I had if I don't didn't describe as a kind of a, a skimpy outfit that that mm. he that Jesus is wearing just a little um a, a saucy little number just a diaphanous little um loincloth basically and a little <laughs> cape you know is how is it that she's how is it that that Magdalene doesn't see that this is the same guy from just a few days ago mm -hmm. is their memory that short right so what is it that's um happening there and you know and i mean there's all sorts of really interesting ways to think about this and one is that that Jesus is is fundamentally changed by by this experience and in a way that yeah changes his actual visage 
Um, the other th way is that, that Jesus might be changed from, if we think um, from later Christian doctrine of the harrowing of hell, that Jesus it might be changed by everything that has happened to him, this sort of um, fullness of um, of all history and all time and all sin and everything that he's um, that he's experienced um, in in what in human time just represents a few days. Right. So so he's completely galactically changed in some profound way. Mm. Maybe he comes back with scrambled senses. So maybe maybe he doesn't recognize her and she's not used to not being recognized, mm. you know, and she doesn't understand why. Why would this man be hiding if this really is Jesus? Why would he not be racing towards her and be thrilled to see her again? And so, so there can be misrecognition happening on on both sides of this. But I mean, I, I I sort of frame this with my own experience of after my sister Whitney passed, of seeing elements of her. I still do a little bit, but not as keenly as I did in those early years of seeing elements of her like, oh, these are her eyes. This is her hair, everything. Mm. You know, if you glimpse people in an airport when you've lost someone and, and maybe maybe people feel this about people that um, that they've just even broken up with, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be in death. But for me, this it, it, this idea of just this desperation to see this person again, mm -hmm. that you're looking and looking for them. And yet Jesus's disciples and followers seem to be doing the opposite. They can't even see, you know, they're seeing the actual person. And they're like, nah, it can't be him. Right. right. It just, it's, it seems ludicrous, but I think it helps frame a really key thing, which is when is a person still the same person? You know, when, mm. what is, what is absolutely truly core to, to a person's identity, however much they, they may have changed. And, and so I, those, that's the kind of way I, I've wanted to kind of investigate that of, mm -hmm. through this, this misrecognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have like a similar kind of experience in that regard of, you know, I, I look similar to, you know, what I did. 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, you know, similar facial structure and all of that. But I think a lot of people who haven't known me for the last 10 years and how much I've changed politically and theologically and everything, mm. I bet a lot of people would not recognize me anymore in that right. regard. You know, right. they may physically recognize me, but they wouldn't recognize me. And uh, I think that is common for a lot of people. Right. And they would come to you with the same preconceptions about your identity. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's quite interesting as well, that that people would say, yeah, pe we expect people. And of course, we know even a cellular level that that's not the case. But people, we expect everyone to remain the same and we expect them to remain the same for our benefit so that we have the comfort of knowing the stability of their identity, partly because that vouchsafes the um, the constancy of, of our own identity. Right. Mm -hmm. So we we want to see them the same way so that we know we are seen in the same way sometimes. Yeah. And so I, I, there's a it's a simplicity and a complexity there. And and I do love, you know, what that brought up for you, because I think it's just that sense of how useful the Gospels are for framing existential dilemmas. Now, we know in biblical scholarship that that can be that can be problematic. We can map things on that don't exist to the, right. the, the text. And I love um, Stendhal's um, Paul Among Jews and Gentiles for this reason, if, that we have the existential conscience of the modern West that we map on and, and see in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. But the truth is we always do that. And, and there is also value in, in that, in mm -hmm. that in, interpolation as well. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. 
With writing a book about what Jesus sees and obviously sight and vision being very central to this book, how do you navigate or how do you think through people who are sight impaired or blind? Like, how do you think yeah. through that? Uh, I would imagine that that's a question that's rolling around in your mind as you're writing a book about like this. Yeah, you know, I and that was a nervousness that I had. I think we've all had a, a reckoning with our own internal um, prejudices and preconceptions, or we hopefully we have in, in the last several years in particular um, for a variety of reasons. And And one thing that I was really aware of as I was writing someone's book is that I didn't want to value sight in a way that was ableist and and repeated what I see as the sort of moral tropes about seeing that are that are just omnipresent through the gospels. I mean everything is about being um, being blind and then seeing and that that and and so the very idea of coming into awareness morally is always seen in a a visual metaphor. Right. And, and so I didn't want to to repeat that. But at the same time, I wanted to kind of meet the text at where it is and, and see what we could do with um, with that kind of material. You know, so I think, uh, you know, I, I think in particular of the story about Jesus and um, uh, the man born blind. Right. And that mm-hmm. there's that the people around him think that he must be sinful. Right. So so at the very least, um, you know, Jesus is is not apt to uh, just sort of swallow uh, this theological explanation. He gives one which also has its own problems, but but he sends the man off, right? And he wants him to bathe in the pools of Siloam and he wants him to rub his eyes with with mud. And he wants them to, he wants this, per, he wants to be there also at the first moment that this person sees. And so he's kind of guiding him through what it's like to come into sight. Uh, you know, they have this dialogue about who, you know, uh, who is this man? You know, who is Jesus? Well, he's the man who's mm-hmm. who's right in front of you, right? Because the man can't, hasn't seen, how could he even make sense of the visual data that suddenly would be kind of flooding into his system? And so I sort of imagine Jesus touches him and holds him and and helps him create these kind of new neural pathways to, mm. to be able to to understand seeing, because seeing is not just a visual act, it's an, it's an understanding. And I, and, you know, I think maybe if we pivot in that way, and we think not just of not just a sight in a narrow biological sense, but we think of, of seeing. Um, and I was I was talking about this with a, a filmmaker friend of mine, um, um, Pete Tolton, last night actually. A sort of borderline experiences of seeing, of new sight, uh, a third eye, all sorts of different ways the, on the margins of what we might consider to be seeing, right? And and so maybe the maybe the thing to do in these kind of uh, stories is to to focus on what kind of awareness is being granted what what kind of mm. how is jesus utilizing the senses to tell a story about awareness a recognition of truth and undermining ideas certain ideas of um and, and prejudices about um deficiency that exist at his time he doesn't catch all of these because he's a first century jew so he's going to make real big mistakes by contemporary standards of, of prejudice but but he does does, um, in that story, unwind at least some of the prejudices uh, of his era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With a book uh, that you know obviously is focusing on what Jesus sees, it seems like you and as you explore what Jesus sees, it seems like you really reveal this radical empathy. And I think that's sort of the the terminology you use uh, of radical empathy that Jesus seems to demonstrate throughout these stories. Can you talk about what you mean by radical empathy? And and it's, what I really like is how you kind of want to also shape it. Like how, what how should this matter to us today? How radical empathy should matter to us today and potentially even how it really should um, shape our politics. Right. Yeah. You know, I think, um, well, one of the things that I find most distressing, um, you know, writing a book about Jesus in this time is that, you know, you're, um, you're also competing for for airspace and time with people that are genuinely stupid and mean, like Lauren Boebert. And, mm. and who think that they know everything about um, the Bible. And <laughs> shockingly, um, they don't. Right. Um, and, you know, so it's, yeah, it's really, um, it, well, ask me the question again. I'm going to take a different, I'm going to take a slightly yeah. different angle on it, actually. Yeah. So how do you understand radical empathy, yeah. especially the radical empathy you think that Jesus is demonstrating here in these stories? And then how do you think it should shape our lives and even maybe especially our politics? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, so I gave an example there of someone, a very unempathetic way of addressing someone I think uh, <laughs> doesn't um, doesn't show enough empathy. I think, you know, I think the key thing is to, you know, as St. Augustine said is, you know, if we, and again, Augustine sometimes gets things really wrong, um, but but that if we're not finding love in a biblical passage, we're probably reading it wrong. That mm. there and and so and so we need to coax the text to tell us the messages of love. Whereas actually, I think sometimes we come with these preconceptions of looking for a rationalization or justification for the opposite um, there. And and so I wanted to emphasize in some cases that the way the Bible is being most utilized in contemporary politics um, in America. Uh, is, you know, in questions of, of gender and sexuality, for instance. And mm -hmm. so I did want to tackle what it means to truly see someone. And, uh, and, and that's the kind of call that we have. I actually really like this in contemporary diction that a lot of people talk about, you know, what I, I feel seen, I want to be seen, you know, and, and what does that mean? It actually comes back to the question you asked earlier about, you know, how do we not that that's not an ableist thing, right? It's not just about mm -hmm. vision. That they want to be they want to be appreciated and recognized in a really deep way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Jesus is doing with his uh, with his disciples. And I bring out the kind of calling narrative. What would what would be like to take that seriously in relationship to how people who were not trans, for instance, might perceive uh, friends? lovers, colleagues, um, passersby that, that, um, that are trans and, mm -hmm. and that the, we're getting caught up in this language of saying that someone should be, um, identified with their biological sexes as if that itself is this kind of immutable God-given fact in some ways, which is so scientifically and theologically flawed in all these different ways. But I, I you know, I try to sort of enter into that debate in a more productive way and say, the number one pronoun that Jesus is is wanting us to use is the second person. He's wanting us to to just identify someone as you. That they, mm -hmm. he wants people to be able to the core message. You know, Jesus wouldn't have understood a lot of different elements of human sexuality as we as we see and appreciate it now. But he would have really understood this uh, this core message of his own of mm -hmm. of of seeing and identifying people for who they are in a way that makes them say I I feel seen right mm -hmm. and and the importance of elevating that and so on the one hand it, I I use this kind of radical empathy um, as a phrase just because I want to emphasize that that there's a searing clarity to that. And yet at the same time, it's also really simple. It's not that, um, and I think radical ideas are oftentimes ha have searing clarity and simplicity to them. It's mm -hmm. not that, um, you know, you know, again, having just been in Atlanta and seeing this um, uh, examples of the placards that people carry that say, you know, I am a man, right? Just at the very basic level, I want to be seen in this way, recognize me mm -hmm. and my humanity. And to have to and and to have to emphasize that is so tragic and so sad, but but in those periods so absolutely essential. And so kind of recovering that mm -hmm. rather than look, utilizing the Bible to find opportunities to not see people. And that's what I just find so um, so abhorrent and and so hard to to watch as a um, as a scholar of religion and just as a person <laughs> right now. Mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of, you know, a lot of times when we see uh, w when these moments happen of specifically, let's say, like a, a black man who's killed by the, the police. And a lot of times the images of these men are like they're trying to create a narrative of like th this is, you know, maybe like maybe they'll like have like a mugshot of of that mm -hmm. man who was killed or whatever, rather than a photo of this person just, you know, being a normal person or whatever. And, yeah. and there's a reason why that narrative or there, there's a reason why people are choosing one photo or the other of this person because of how do we want to see this person? And again, I think what you're pulling out is it seems like Jesus would certainly be the kind of person of like, let, let's actually pull out like the real you and not this like uh, characterization of, you know, what you would see like in a mugshot. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so many um, there's so many tropes and the problem with 
images that the very thing that makes him powerful and useful is this thing that makes him incredibly slippery and dangerous because mm -hmm. we um, they can tell uh, seem to tell another story instantly and a counter narrative and they can be used as evidence in, in ways that are just incredibly problematic. And, you know, I, I, I uh, mentioned in the book the work of an artist I, I really like, Jared Thorne. And Jared um, has very thoughtfully asked permission from uh, the families of murdered young uh, black men, uh, murdered by police for the autopsy reports. And even in the autopsy, and then he, with light boxes, he'll reverse these. And so, but in just in the reversing of them from white diagrams that are sort of annotated to, to luminous black diagrams of the body, there's a, a mm. there's a reversal, right? And in in a, in a kind of a way of seeing things that seem to be just the the dead body suffering stigmata to maybe seeing someone as a in ascent, um, a rising body. Mm. But it's it's so telling that in this basic thing that this last one of the last indignities that people suffer is that they the the the, the torments that were remeted out upon them that the bullet wounds. Um, are being perceived to be on a white body as a normative foundational thing, that their bodies are departures from a white norm, um, mm. even in the very diagrams of, of their autopsies, right? Wow. And so I think it, it showcases in this, this quite powerful, dramatic way um, the, the, all these preconceptions of sight. And, and I think that's, there's so many ways, and I, I just touched on some of them in the book, right, of course, um, but there's so many ways in which the evils that we're doing to people at, at the present are visual errors and visual sins. And so it's, so it's, it's, I, I hope that I shed a at least a little bit of light on some of these, um, on some of these problems. And, mm -hmm. and again, it was something that I entered into with a lot of trepidation because I think not all of these always feel like my own stories to tell, or they don't feel, but they feel very urgent. And it was just a, a sense of trying to get it as right as I could to, to tackle all of these different, um, cultural problems and debates in which I think Jesus and ideas of sight have a role to, to play. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theology. So how do you hope uh, what Jesus would see inspires and liberates its readers? Well, I would say that, um, you know, it's funny reading what some people had written about the book or what some people's response would have said is very optimistic. And I just thought, Oh, that's nice. I never think of myself as optimistic. Um, I always think of myself as incredibly cynical. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the funny things about writing is that sometimes, as, as a friend of mine says, you know, that there's an intrinsic act of optimism in writing. And, and so I felt more optimistic having written the book, actually. And I think it's that, it, you know, to come back to the idea and more of a, a ophthalmological um, metaphor, you know, that, that, you know, to be able to um, see more clearly or to have kind of corrective surgery, that, that, that the, the, the ways we use seeing um, poorly and incorrectly and, and in damaging ways, um, those can be reversed. Um, mm. and, and the same tools that got us um, in the wrong direction, can, we can return to those mm. and we can use them to, to see with, with fresh eyes. And so, so I hope that at the very least, there's kind of a catalyst for people who read the book to go back and see the, um, see the text in new ways, um, things that they thought that they understood in a particular way. And that might be liberating. And they might also be liberating the text, right? I think that's the thing is that the, the text becomes um, prisoner so oftentimes to our preconceptions. And we have to, in this hermeneutic circle, allow the text to, to be liberated, to liberate us again. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's you know, one of the recurring ideas that, that animates me as a theologian. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Rosen, how can listeners get connected to you and, and your work? And where can they get the book? Uh, yes, uh, the book is everywhere. I I always prefer that everyone buys the book, uh, even if it's used, even if I never see a dollar, please buy from your local bookstores, order from your local bookstores. But if you must, then of course it's on Amazon, um, Bookshop, it's on every possible um, channel, it's out there. Um, uh, you can even write me. <laughs> uh, and, and there's lots of ways to reach me. Um, uh, one way is through uh, my uh, Instagram, um, I avoid um, Facebook as much as possible and definitely avoid Twitter. Um, and of course, it's a book on site. So Instagram is the most visual. So um, Parsonage Gallery. And, uh, and I also run a, um, a gallery 
uh, on the coast of Maine with my wife. One of the many things we do, but kind of an ex exploratory space to kind of test out a lot of the kind of ideas and things that we that I've played with in the book. Um, so the Parsonage Gallery in Searsport, Maine, um, and you can look us up at parsonagegallery.org. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, I love the book. It, it was absolutely incredible. And your perspective, it, it just like hearing your perspective, you know, about these stories is just so, so cool. So thank you so much for chatting more about the book. Oh, that's really kind. I really appreciate it. I don't take having anyone read anything I've written for granted. <laughs> If you would like to connect with Aaron and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meniga. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.